So here at Revolution Church, we like to go through books of the Bible and teach the word the way it's written, verse by verse. And we've been in the Gospel of Mark and just studying the remarkable life of Jesus Christ. And it's been, it's been a major blessing to me, and I'm getting good feedback from you all about Jesus and how much we get to know Him even more, and what a Savior, as we just sang. Um, so we are in Mark chapter 13, verse 28, and... Uh, I want to read this to you. If you think about what's just happened, Jesus has cleansed the temple. He's been teaching in the temple. He's been not letting all the normal commerce go on. And he's been teaching some pretty hard things. And it's going to get even more intense, as you'll see here in a second. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things that taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. And would you read the verse 36 together with me? lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a, a, a difficult passage. I pray that you'd give us wisdom. Uh, give me recall of thought as I present this to our church this morning. Help us to receive it with open minds and open hearts and a spirit of discernment so that we can know you better and know about the times and the seasons that we live in. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Amen. So I remember back in 1981, I was a junior in high school, and we had a camp evangelist, and he went through like a jet tour of the book of Revelation. And it was so exciting, and he was talking about all the things that make Revelation exciting, you know, the mark of the beast, and the seven trumpets, and all the plagues, and all the things like that. And he started off on Monday night saying, I am going to tell you this week, on Friday night, because we went to camp all through Friday night and left on Saturday morning. He said, I will tell you on Friday night when Jesus is coming back. And we were all like, wow. And you know, a lot of that was going on back there in the early, late 70s, early 80s, and a lot of prophecy, a lot of things going on, and much of it based on truth, and a lot of it based on speculation and, and news headlines. But we're all thinking, man, when is Jesus coming? Now, as a teenager who was saving himself for marriage, I didn't want Jesus to come yet, <laughs> okay? You know, I wanted, to experience married, I wanted to experience married life. I wanted to have kids. I wanted all that, you know? So I want Jesus to come, but not now. Jesus, please wait a few years. And, and, um, and a lot of us, there were some of our teens in our youth group that said, you know, that Jesus comes when you don't expect it. So if we expect it every day, he won't come. And there, I remember one girl in our, our youth department, Kim Owen, she would say, you know, every day I think Jesus is going to come, and that way, because I think he's going to come, he won't come. And she had this really weird logic, but she was a blonde, so, you know, it kind of goes with that. So, but what was funny is, on Friday night, 
He goes, I told you all week that I would tell you when Jesus is coming, and I'm going to let you know that Jesus is coming tonight. And there was like 500 of us teenagers there, and you could just hear a pin drop. And he left this long, awkward pause as we're all in anticipation, and he goes, but if he doesn't come tonight, he's coming tomorrow night. And if he doesn't come tomorrow night, he's coming the next night. And basically he said, the point is, expect Jesus to come. You know, and he didn't pick a date. He just kind of made you think he was going to, but that was the interesting way he went. And so um, Elvis has put in your hands a handout just to help us see where we're at in, in time, okay? Um, it's interesting that the Bible talks about weeks as in a seven days, but it also talks about weeks in the form of seven years, and it also talks about weeks in the form of thousands of years. And if you look at world history, it's divided up into a week. There is a couple thousand years before Christ's coming, and then there's 3,000 years before Christ's coming, and then since it's been 2,000 years, okay, and then there's the millennial kingdom, which is a thousand years. And so you see those seven weeks of history. I don't think I had that right. But if you look at where we're at right there, even Daniel said when he made his prophecy, there'd be 69 weeks, 400 years before Messiah comes. And guess when Jesus came? Boom, right there, 490 years. The, 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 the 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy all came true. And now we're living in that orange area called the church age. And the next thing that we are expecting to happen is the rapture. When it, and rapture is just a Latin word for the catching away. When First Thessalonians 4 says, we are caught up together with him in the air, and oh, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And it's interesting, if you read the book of Revelation, it starts off with, to the churches, to the churches, to the seven churches, right? And then all of a sudden, boom, nothing about the church at all. And all of a sudden, it starts talking about what all is happening on the earth, and then it jumps up to heaven, and there's a marriage supper lamb going on while this is going on earth. So you see that something's happened there, and what has happened is the rapture, the catching away of the church. And so the tribulation is the seven-year period. The great tribulation is the worst part of the seven-year period. At first, it's really bad, but then the Antichrist makes the world better, and he got three and a half years of peace because he signs a peace treaty with Israel, and he makes the world better. And then at three and a half years, he draws a line in the sand and says, you know what? I'm not just your world ruler. I am your God. And he does the abomination of desolation. He goes into the temple in Jerusalem and he, all, he, he offers a sacrifice as an abomination. And that's when all, literally all hell breaks loose on earth. Another reason I believe that we're not there during that time period is because the Bible says we're saved from wrath through Christ. And if the tribulation is God pouring his wrath out on the planet, why would, if we've been saved from it, if that's why Jesus died on the cross for us, why would he make us go through hell on earth if Jesus took that punishment for us? So again, another reason, there's, there are good people, good Christians who have different views on this. Some people believe what's called a post-tribulation rapture, which means that we do go through the tribulation and that Jesus returns, or Jesus appears, we get caught up together in the clouds with him to turn around and go right back down which doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense, but so there's good people who believe that. There are some people who believe in a mid-tribulation rapture, that we're here for the first three and a half years, but in the middle of the tribulation is when we're caught up. And, and again, I don't think there's as much biblical basis for that. There are, we are what we believe, in, we are, what we teach is what we call premillennial, that we believe that we are taken out before the millennium. And there's some people who are post-millennial, which means that we as, the, as Christians, we kind of take over the world, make the world a better and better place, 
and that we're ruling for a thousand years, and then Christ comes at the end of a thousand years. Which again, I don't think there's a good strong case for that, but there are Christians who agree to disagree on those subjects. So this passage right here is divided up into four uh, points here this morning, four points. First, he gives a simple analogy of the fig tree. Then he gives a spiritual application of what we are supposed to do in light of Christ's eminent coming. And then he, gives, he, he lays out his supreme authority as to why he can say what he's saying. And then he ends with the, the warning to stay alert, to stay alert. So we start with verse 28. He talks about the fig tree, and we're supposed to learn a lesson from it. Well, if you remember, a few days before he does this, and again, the context here, this is literally 48 hours before his death. So on Monday, he's heading into town, and he goes to a fig tree because he's hungry, and he sees leaves, and he sees little buds, but these are the, the, the little figs that come out in the spring, but the big ones don't come out till later. The, the little ones aren't hardly even edible. Uh, they're very sour and bitter. He goes to the fig tree, hoping to get something to eat, and and he doesn't see anything, so he, what does he do to the fig tree? He curses it. So, and then they go into town, he cleanses the temple, and on the way out of town, they see the same fig tree, and guess what? It is totally wilted. It is totally like everything, leaves have fallen off of it. It looks like it's been dead for years because Jesus cursed it. <clears throat> now, he says that you can learn this lesson from pretty much any tree. He picks a fig tree and he says, as soon as the branches become tender, it puts out its leaves and you know that summer is near. You don't have to be a horticulturist to know that this, these things happen. Kids see this. They know that leaves fall in the fall. That's why we call it fall. And that leaves come back in the spring. And so you know that summer, the hot point, and I think he uses that summer as a, a reference to heat, you know, burning heat and the fervent wrath of God. He says, so you know the leaves are coming. So you can see these things. You don't know exactly what's going to happen when, but you can tell when something is close. You know, you see a mom out to here, you know, and she's, looking, she's about to pop. You may not be able to predict the delivery day, but you know a baby is coming soon. And so Jesus is giving us a very simple analogy, uh, and, you can, and he's used the, the birth pain one, he's used the fig tree, he's used several analogies that are easy enough for kids to grasp to where we say, hey, is Jesus coming soon? So when the New Testament tells us that in the last days, perilous times shall come, things will get worse, men will be lovers of their own selves, children be rebellious to parents, there'll be basically anarchy and all these things. You see all those things, and do you see those things? <laughs> it's interesting that the reaction to the Supreme Court was a night of rage. And they passed out maps to... Um, pregnancy help centers all over the country, and, and hundreds of them got vandalized and threatened. And there was, even in Arizona, the senators got basically barricaded inside and were held hostage. I mean, this the violent reaction. If you don't get your way, I'm going to be, I throw a temper tantrum, and I'm going to burn a building down, I'm going to do something. And it's, instead of being civil people who exercise the rule of law, we just decide we're going to burn things and we're just going to throw fits. You see that becoming more and more the state of anarchy in the world. So we look at that and say, is Jesus coming soon? You would think so. You would know it's closer than it was last year, right? But we don't know. I mean, it could be a few days. It could be a few years. It could be a few decades. We really don't know. One of the indicators that Jesus gave us as a barometer of the last days, he says, as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And what do we read about the days of Noah? 
It says the world was full of violence. So are we full? I don't know. If we're full of violence, it's pretty violent, right? But I think it get worse. But how, you know how fast things can get worse? Just think of the way you th- your impression of America three years ago and now, and now three years later. And we're talking three years, thing went really fast. And this could all be a change in a matter of days. I mean, imagine just uh, a scenario where some president, Republican or Democrat, I'm not trying to pick sides, I'm not making a prophecy here, okay? But imagine one president, either one party, got assassinated. I could see cities going berserk really fast. And we saw that a couple summers ago, right? We saw what could happen all across the country and all across the world. Imagine if it was kicked up to even another level, not just a George Floyd, but someone even bigger and more prominent than that, and what could happen. So the world could become full of violence really quickly, 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 really quickly. So here's another interesting fact. Dr. Carl Ball, who's a creation scientist, estimates that if you, if you do the genealogies of, the, of Genesis and you do the age durations of those generations back then, he estimates that from Adam and Eve till the flood, there was probably 8 billion people on the planet. And if, he's, if Jesus says, as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of Son of Man be, what if he means also, in addition to all the other things, the populations being the same. You know where we're at right now? 7.91. Maybe that's a correlation there. That's just, that's just an interesting factoid for you right there. Um, so what does the fig tree represent? Now, I've always been taught that it meant Israel's rebirth. That in 1948, when Israel came, which by the way was prophesied, he says, I will scatter you to the four corners of the earth and I will bring you back to in. And he has fulfilled that. That's, that's the most, one of the most amazing prophecies in all the Bible, that Israel, which was not a nation, and Hebrew was a dead language, and now that nation is reborn in 1948, and they bring back their dead language and speak Hebrew. That, that is miraculous. It's never been done in history throughout thousands of years of history. And some people say that when Jesus talked about the fig tree bearing its leaves, it's Israel coming back to life, and that a generation would not pass from that. So that's why there was all kinds of speculation back then. Um, he says that, I say to you, this generation, and so he's saying the one he was talking to, um, I'm sorry, the generation that, uh, not the one he was talking about, the generation that saw the rebirth of Israel, that a generation would not pass. So a lot of people say, wait a minute, what's a generation? Well, there's disagreement on that, but some people think a generation's 40 years. So some people say, okay, 1948, 40 years, 1988, and in this book was wildly, wildly circulated across America. Anybody remember this book right here? While the ra- 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Okay, And that was all based on this whole idea that the, that the fig tree was the rebirth of Israel and therefore a generation being 40 years. Then they said, well, actually, when Jesus didn't come, actually a generation, we studied, went back and studied again, it's not 40 years, it's 50 years. So they said, you know, 98 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come in 1998. And that didn't happen, <laughs> you know. And then everybody, remember everybody like, freaking out about Y2K? Oh, Jesus is coming in 2000. And even then our calendar year might not be right and all that stuff. But there's a lot of speculation based on that. Um, but Jesus makes it abundantly clear, no one knows. No one knows. You, you will never hear me pick a date, okay? Now let me make, let me make a, a distinction here. A prophecy is different than a prediction, Okay? I can predict that the Astros will win the World Series. But if I say God told me 
The Astros are going to win the World Series. That's a prophecy. The other one's a prediction. Pastors can make predictions and be wrong, but when you say God told me and you're wrong, what does the Bible call you? A false prophet, okay? You see that. You see false prophecies all throughout history, and that usually should be a telltale sign that you need to run, okay? But people often don't. It, it started as early as 90 AD. Clement I, one of the early church fathers, a disciple of the Apostle Paul, he predicted that the Lord would come in 90 AD. Um, didn't happen. Um, and then you've got Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church. By the way, did you notice in the news, the Mormon church, they, they keep changing everything they believe. Okay, when they started, they believed in polygamy. Of course, that became very countercultural, so they dropped that. Even though that, even though Joseph Smith, their founder, had 19 wives, two of which were minors, okay? He, he was a pedophile. He was very warped. He also said that God told him that the black race is the cursed race and blacks cannot go to heaven. Well, they've changed on that. And of course, did you see what happened this week? They now say that the LGBT crowd is okay and that the church has been wrong on that too. So they just constantly change their beliefs to whatever the culture says in spite of what they're... Pro and then they rewrite their Bibles. The, the Book of Mormon has been revived so many times it's not even funny. Um, and, they, and yet they will say it's the perfect book and the Bible is not. So Joseph Smith predicted that the Lord would come in 1832. He didn't. He predicted it again in 1890. He didn't. 1891. And then he kept on doing it. And of course, every time he was wrong, but the Mormon church just kept on growing. William Miller, uh, he was a Baptist preacher. Then he shifted over to Seventh-day Adventist and he started making predictions to 1843, 1844. None of that happened. Under the, the people who followed him were called Millerites. Many of them sold everything they had, climbed up to the top of the mountain, and sat there and sang songs and prayed till Jesus came, and he didn't. And they had to go back and try to get everything back that they had sold. Um, Ellen G. White, also associated with Seventh-day Adventists. I don't know if you know, to this day, Seventh-day Adventists are very, very much into prophecy. A ton of prophecy. In fact, there is a group, they're, they're divided into two major groups. One of the major groups says that the mark of the beast is Sunday worship. Like right now, you've accepted the mark of the beast because you are worshiping on Sunday, not on Saturday. Um, but Ellen G. White, she prophesied the Lord would come in 1850. He didn't come. 1856, didn't come. But her followers still came and followed her. The Jehovah's Witnesses are probably the worst at it. Okay, they only started in the 1840s. And they predicted the Lord would come in 1914, 1915. You can see all the numbers there. And they're still doing it to this day. They constantly look at the news headlines and say, okay, this and this, this, this in the Bible, and therefore Jesus is coming and he doesn't come. But yet their following still continues to grow worldwide. So does the fig tree represent the rebirth of Israel and therefore a generation later? It's very unclear, okay? Um, at, at this point, what are we looking at? 74 years. And, and if you take that, you know, a there's some verses in the Bible that say, you know, some people live to 72 and by strength can live to 80, you know, four score. Um, maybe you could go that way. But again, I wouldn't bank on it, okay? We do know that Israel being reborn was fulfilling prophecy. We just don't know if it's connected to what Jesus is saying in this passage. We do know it's an analogy. We do know that Jesus is saying, learn a lesson from a fig tree that when the leaves bud, you know something's happening. You know summer is coming. So let's move on to the spiritual application. How does this apply to us? How should we live different starting Monday morning? He says, so also when you see these things, when you see the world getting worse, you see prophecy being fulfilled, 
and, and of course, we have to ask, what things is he talking about? Let's, let's look, go through them. First of all, he, last week we learned about the abomination of desolation. I do believe that that is a future event where the Antichrist will go into the temple and he will make a sacrifice that is abominable. It's, a, it's blasphemous. And him claiming to be God is blasphemous. And of course, you've got the unholy trinity. You've got Satan, the false prophet, and the beast. Just equal to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And you see that all happening as that's the world religion in that day. And you'll see that abomination as Jesus foretold. I don't believe there's anywhere in history you could say that's already happened since Jesus said it would happen. Remember 166 years before Jesus said that, there was an abomination of desolation. But Jesus said this one is yet to come. He's like pointing back like, you remember this? When um, Antiochus Epiphanes did that. He said, another one's going to come in the future. I don't think we could point to anything like that. So therefore, it's still future tense. We, he talks about the birth pains. You know, when a, when a woman has contractions, she knows that a delivery is near. But you know how it is, ladies. That could mean one hour. It could mean two days. Okay? But you know it, it's, it's eminent. And then what Jesus says in, back in Mark 13, 24, he says, in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened I don't think we could say that's, been ha that's happened. That's why a lot of people thought eclipses meant the Lord was coming. But I think this is more than an eclipse. The moon will not give its light. Again, not a lunar eclipse, but something more permanent. And that stars will fall from heaven. And some people take that. I take this literally, again, based on a comparison with Revelation. Some people think this means demons falling because that's also a picture of demons falling. Like he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Okay. But I believe these things will all literally take place as, the, as our solar system gets messed up. Anyway, he says, you know that the end is near and he is near. Talking about the Messiah, Jesus himself. And he's at the very gates. The gates of what? Where is he standing when he's teaching all this? Okay. He's got his back to the Western wall and he's teaching there from the gates. And he's saying, just like Zechariah prophesied that my feet will touch down this very Mount of Olives and right here and I'll return to the temple. Then Jesus says that's where he'll return when in his second coming. And remember, there's a distinction between the rapture and the second coming. The rapture, Jesus doesn't come to earth. He appears where? In the clouds. And we go up to meet him. The second coming, he actually comes to earth. So keep those distinctions in mind. So how should we as Christians... How should seeing these birth pains affect our everyday lives? We do see birth pains. We don't know if Jesus is coming in a few days, few weeks, few years, few decades. We don't know. But we do know that it's closer than it was. How do we react to that? Now, let me give you four things. Number one, you need to put your hope in the fact of his return. Your hope should not be in your 401k. Your hope should not be in your career staying on, staying on the right trajectory. Your hope should not be in any of those things. Your hope should be in Christ's returns because any of those things can be gone like that. The government could seize them. You see that happen in Venezuela and other dictatorships where Marxism spreads across the globe. They just seize bank accounts. And it's like everything that belongs to you, it, it, it could be gone just like that. So don't put your hope in any of those things. Put your hope in your return. Think about how hope is such a popular word. President Obama got elected twice on the whole idea of hope. Hope. That's a very popular name for churches. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but people want to have hope in something. And I'm telling you, put your hope in, in the fact that Jesus is coming. No matter how bad things get, and they will get worse, just keep your hope and your eyes on the fact that Jesus is coming for his church. The second thing you should do in reaction to these birth pains is purify yourself in light of his return. Purify him, yourself. 
Clean up your life, okay? Not in your own flesh and your own bootstraps, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. I get these two points right here from 1 John 3. We know that when he appears, who's he? Right, Jesus. When Jesus appears, we will be like him. You're going to be transformed in the moment, in the blink of an eye, you'll be transformed to be like him. And why will you become like him? Because you actually see him in his full glory. And just like Moses' face glowed, you will be transformed head to toe, not just your face, when you behold the glorified Christ. And therefore, he says, verse 3, and everyone who thus, what? Hopes in him. Hopes in him, what? His return purifies himself. If I said, hey, Larry, we're coming over to your house this afternoon. You guys are like, man, load up the kids, head home. We got to clean, right? You got to clean up the house. If you know someone's coming over for dinner or something like that, you're going to clean things up. And if you know Jesus is coming, you should clean up your life. You know, it should be a motivator. Like, and this is a question we were asked all the time as teenagers, you know, when we really thought the Lord was coming any day, that if, if Jesus came today, would you want him catching you doing this? And, you know, we name some sins or whatever. So therefore, you know someone's coming. If you know Jesus is coming, it should change the way we live. So as followers of Jesus, we should live lives that are hopeful and pure. Hopeful and pure. That's very different than the people around us. People around us today, they feel like they have no hope. Suicide rates amongst millennials and, and Gen Xers is going through the roof. Because why? They feel like they have no hope. They feel like the world is messed up. I'm bullied when I go to school. My parents are going to a divorce and nobody loves me. There's no hope. We also see the world moving away from purity. Purity, they want to condone sin. They want to justify sin. They want to label it and normalize it. And it's being pushed in your face all the time to normalize sin. We as Christians need to say, no, I'm staying pure from all that. And, and, and please hear what I'm saying. Do not do this and I'm holier than you. I am better than you. Look at all those people. They're so bad people. I'm glad us Christians are we are the good people. No, we're, we struggle too, but we have something they don't. We have a Holy Spirit living inside of us. He's not just the Spirit. He's a Holy Spirit. He is perfectly pure, and He lives in us, and He gives us the ability to live lives that are different. Back in World War II, there was a, a pastor who was in Scotland and his name is Murdo McDonald. And he was a pastor. And when the war came, he signed up to go to battle. And he wanted to be a chaplain. And he was a chaplain for British soldiers. And one day he got captured along with a whole bunch of other soldiers. And they had the, um, the, in the Nazi concentration camp there, they had the prisoners um, divided in two categories. They had the Europeans on one side, they had the Americans on the other. Well, there was two of these Scottish pastors on one side. So Murdu volunteered to go over to the American side to minister to them. So the Nazis allowed him to go over to the other side. And every day, these two pastors would meet at the fence, and they would talk to each other about what was going on. And the Americans had smuggled in a shortwave radio. So they were getting updates on the battle and how things were going. And see, the Nazis spoke French, they spoke German, and they understood some English. But they didn't speak Gaelic, which is what the Scottish guys spoke. So they would, under their breath, speak Gaelic to each other, and they could share, hey, we just heard about this. We heard about Normandy. We heard about things that are changing. Things are going our way. And then, one, and so 
the, the Nazi, the, the Nazi uh, soldiers are treating these prisoners poorly, as you can imagine. There's torture, there's beatings, there's starvation, all kinds of things going on. And lots of the soldiers are losing hope and becoming discouraged. But one day these two guys met at the fence and Murdu says to the other pastor in Gaelic, our soldiers are here. They are just days away and we're about to be, and the war is winding down. We're about to have victory. And they were just ecstatic. And they both went back to their, their uh, the, um, the facilities and he told the ones on the European side and soldiers were jumping up and down and celebrating and just rolling on the floor and crying and doing all kinds of things. And you know what? For the next several days, they walked around smiling and happy, even though the Nazi soldiers were still treating them poorly. In fact, here's what Murdu said. He said, we were still prisoners in a sense, but boy, we walked around and thought we were at a party. We didn't complain about the food anymore. We didn't hate the guards anymore. We smiled at them. We felt sorry for them, even though they were pointing guns at us and we, even though they were still prison, we were still prisoners. But the truth is, we were set free by the news before we even were set free by the guards. Do you see the parallel for us in that? Even though the world may treat us badly, even though things may look not great in the world and in our society, we know that it's just a matter of days before we're set free. And we need to keep our eyes on the second coming of Christ and let us give us hope and let it cause us to purify our lives. Number three, we should share the gospel urgently. If Christ was to come next week, how many people do you know at work, in your neighborhood, in your family, who don't know Jesus? What are we waiting for? We need to have gospel conversations. I mean, at the very least, I mean, we have this postcard here, which we've spent some money on, and, and we're reaching new people, but this... this QR code right here. Just ask people, please, would you just watch this? Take a picture with your cell phone and send it to some friends and ask them to watch. And just basically in that short YouTube video, I share the gospel. What if someone goes to heaven because you shared the QR code with them? Maybe you don't have the, the know-how, you don't think, or the, the courage or whatever to have a gospel conversation. Let me do it for you. Let, let the video play, whatever. But we need to get the word out because if Jesus is coming soon, we need to be urgent about it. And number four, we must equip our kids for a difficult future. Are our kids ready for what's going to come? It, it, you see how crazy it is right now. It's just getting started. It's going to get crazier. Are your kids ready for it? And as I said before, Mario Kart and all those things are not, and TikTok are not going to get your kids ready for that. You've got to spend time studying the scriptures with your kids, teaching them the Bible, praying with them, telling them how much Jesus... Make sure they're saved, first of all. That's the biggest mission field you have. I mean, it's great that our church gives thousands of dollars to missionaries in Scotland and Ghana and everywhere around the world, but our number one mission field is right here. And it's not just Heather and Heather and Tammy's job to make sure they know the gospel. It's, it's you, your job as parents and as grandparents to make sure your kids know Jesus Christ as Savior. So let's go to the third point, the supreme authority. Jesus speaks with supreme authority. He says, heaven and earth will pass away. Now, don't just blow by that phrase right there. The, the galaxies that Jesus has created, the earth that we're standing on, he says, it's going to be gone. And, but let's just talk about that for a second. What, what does he mean by that? Well, in 2 Peter and I'm going to 
chase a rabbit. Will you allow me to do that? Second Peter chapter 3, he says, but the day of the Lord, now, the day of the Lord is talking about when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom. So sometimes the Bible means a 24-hour literal day, like the Hebrew word in the Old Testament Genesis is yom, which means a 24-hour day. That's why Jesus said in the evening, or well, Jesus indirectly through Genesis says the evening and the morning were the first day. He says that's a little 24-hour day. But then the Bible talks about the day of Noah. It doesn't mean one day in Noah's life. It means in his day. Like, just like your granddad says, well, back in my day, he doesn't mean literal day. So the day of the Lord, in this case, if you use 2 Peter 3, he comments on it. He says, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years one day. That fits the millennial perfect. So the day of the Lord is his millennial reign and kingdom. He said, when that starts, it will come as a thief in the night, which the heavens will pass away. So at the end of the millennium is when, during that day, at the end of the day of the Lord, the heavens will pass away with a rushing noise. And the word here is onomatopoeic. You know what onomatopoeic is? It means when the word means what it sounds like. Like the bees make what sound? Buzz. B-U-Z-Z. That's what bees sound like. Well, this word is a krasuin. It's a Greek word. It's just like, and it sounds like what it means. And so I believe this is like a nuclear implosion. Let me, and I'm not just making scientific speculation. He says, because the elements, remember studying the elemental chart? What is an atomic bomb? It's when the atoms release the energy that's inside of them. And scientists find a way for atoms to release. There's energy built up in all the atoms in the universe. And God's going to, just like he spoke the world into existence, he's going to speak the energy to be released from the atoms. And it's going to be a nuclear implosion that will make this rushing vacuumous noise. And it will melt with fervent heat, just like a nuclear bomb or an atomic bomb. And the earth and the works, think of the seven wonders of the world. Think about the tallest buildings in the world the biggest stadiums of the world, whatever you want to say, they all will be burned up, all the works of men. And so in Revelation chapter 20, it talks about this also. He says, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be loosed out of his prison. So Satan's been bound and all the demons bound for a thousand years. And Jesus lets him loose for a short season. You say, why would he do that? Why would he let him loose? I have my opinion, okay? And here's what I think it is. So for a thousand years, we've been living under a benevolent dictator, Jesus Christ. No more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more war, nothing. No more crime. And who are we ruling and reigning over? The survivors of the tribulation and their children. Will we be having children? No, but they will. And the world population will explode. We'll see life expectancies return to like it was before the flood where people lived for hundreds of years. So the world population will rapidly explode and we'll be ruling and reigning with Jesus over these people. They will see Jesus in person as the world leader who's done nothing but good. And we live in this perfect civilization for a thousand years. And guess what happens at the end of a thousand years? Satan lets go. And so let's just see how if humanity learned a lesson. And the Bible says Satan will deceive two-thirds of the planet. You see, psychologists will tell you that man is a product of his environment. That the reason people ride, it's because they're economically suppressed. Or it's because they've been treated badly. Or they didn't get chocolate pudding when they were four. Or whatever. And they have all excuses for your bad behavior. The problem isn't our environment. The problem is inside of here. We are rebels at heart. And this is proof. We will, humanity will be placed in a perfect environment for 1,000 years. 
and they'll still rebel at the end. Because we all of us are. Even if you're saved and you're Jesus, there's still something every day that's like, oh, I have to crucify this flesh. I really don't want to because I want what I want. And so that's the lesson we learn from this passage here. It goes on to say in chapter 21, continuing a few verses later, he says, Then I saw at the end of the thousand years, after Satan's been bound and cast back into the bottomless pit for good, he's at the end of the thousand years, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So for a thousand years, which planet are we living on? This earth. And it starts to heal and replenish. But at the end of a thousand years, he puts them away and says, and the sea was no more. And then he goes on to say in verse 31, and now I'm sorry, back to Mark here. It says, heaven and earth shall pass away. In other words, I'm going to make the whole universe just go away. Just like I spoke in existence ex nihilo, in other words, out of nothing, I'm going to make it return to nothing. And he says, but my words will not pass away. Basically what Jesus is saying here is that it's easier for the entire universe to implode than for the words of Jesus not to come true. Think about that. that, that, that that's, that's pretty impressive. The God who spoke the worlds into existence is going to speak them right out of existence. And he's saying, if I can do all that, if I tell you I'm coming again, you better believe it. And we need to believe the promises of the Lord. You say, well, Gary, but people say all the time that, well, you know, he's been saying he's been coming for a long time and it hasn't happened. And you can, man, you can see atheists trolling on the internet, on YouTube and wherever else, telling us, oh, you Christians, you've been saying Jesus has been coming. You've been making prophecies about 1988. You've been saying all this over and over again. And yeah, we've been expecting it. Even Jesus and, I mean, Peter and John thought Jesus was coming soon. So we, Jesus told us to be on watch. And the reason he didn't give us a day or an hour is because he wants every generation to live as if he's coming then. Because what happens if we live, we expect it. We live with hope and we live with purity. So that, you can answer this, skeptics. In fact, here's, this is amazing. The apostles knew that people would think this. Thousands of years before people would talk this way, what did Peter say? In 2 Peter 3.3, 3, scoffers will come when? In the last days. And they will, keep the, they will do what scoffers do. They'll scoff. And they're following. Here's the reason they scoff. You meet someone who doesn't want to hear the gospel. You meet someone who doesn't believe the Bible is true. It's because of their own sinful desires. It's not because they're so intellectual and so smart. It's because they want to live the way they want to live. And I'm not knocking them. That's the way we, many of us were before with the grace of God, before we found Jesus. And look what it says here. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? <laughs> you guys have been saying Christians, you Christians have been saying Jesus is coming. Where is it? It's, it's not here. Forever since, and here's their philosophy. Forever, it's called, uh, I'm going to say this wrong here, conformitarianism. It means that everything stays the same, that the universe has always been the way it is. And they, they say, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all these old guys who made these prophecies, all things are as they were. Nothing's changed. The world is still the world. It always will be eternal existence, all that stuff, from the beginning of creation. And then here's verse 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. See, I'm telling you, I'm pushing this point hard, and I have for months that the reason your lost friend is lost isn't because he hasn't seen enough evidence. It's because they deliberately don't want to see the facts. And so when you share Christ with them, you need to get to the heart of the matter. You need to memorize this question. Is there any reason you don't want this to be true? Or what is the reason you don't want this to be true? And that's the question will be like, well, because I live this lifestyle and I don't want to give this up. And the Bible says I shouldn't be living this lifestyle. 
And if I believe the Bible, I've got to break up with her. I've got to break up with him. I've got to break up with both of them, whatever it may be. The, the people see they've got to make a change in their lifestyle, and they don't want to do it, so they deliberately overlook the facts. And in this case, he's talking about a specific fact. Watch this follow. It gets complicated, but stay with me, okay? They de- deliberately over this fact, they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed a long time ago, okay? Thousands of years ago, God created the heavens and the earth. And that the earth was formed out of water. This is important. Water is a key word here. Remember, the spirit hovered over the face of the earth. And the earth was unformed. It was basically a watery planet. And through water, by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with what? With water. You see the theme here? Okay. The, what is the water that deluged the world? What's that called? the flood, and people, they deliberately overlook this fact. Do scientists want to believe that there was a worldwide flood? No, they hate that fact because God promised, I will destroy the world, and he did. And then he says, I'll put a rainbow in the sky, which ironically people use today. It's about God's judgment. He said that I will never what? Never destroy the world with water again. What am I going to do next time? It's going to be a fire. So if they believe in a literal Noah's flood then they have to believe that the world's going to be destroyed again with fire, and they don't want to believe that. So they overlook this fact, the, archeolo- the archaeological fact of the flood. The reason that there are fossils all over the planet is because there was a flood. If you buried your dog in your backyard next year, if, it, God forbid, your dog passed away, a thousand years from now, there will be no fossils of your dog unless you put that dog in cement. The world was, cover- was covered basically with sediment equal to cement when the flood happened. And that's why we have an archaeological record. That's why on Mount Everest, you can find fish fossils. How on, Mount, on the world, on Mount Everest, do you find not just one or two, but dozens and dozens? I, how many of you have been hiking in Austin and found the seashells up there at the top of the hills? How did they get there? A worldwide flood. Not just a local flood over there in the, in the Mesopotamian Valley. It was worldwide. All over the United States, you can go to the top of mountains and find seashells and fish fossils because there was a worldwide flood. And, it, and that's what Peter says is, this is the fact that they deliberately don't want to believe. Because if this is true, then the world isn't billions of years old, it's only thousands of years old. And that's why your kids are being pumped full of evolution, 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 as if it's fact, as if it's fact. I remember being in sixth grade and Mrs. Schaefer, my teacher, who I liked a lot, she, she started talking about evolution. And I raised my hand. I said, but isn't this a theory? And she said, no, it's a fact. And I'm like, wow. That was back when I was a little kid. So he says, by this same word, just like I promised I would destroy the world with water, I made the world out of water. I destroyed the world with water. I promise I'll destroy it again, but not with water, but with fire. By this same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You see what, you see what the supreme authority is? The very Jesus who spoke the world's existence, Jesus who flooded the world, says, I'm coming again, I will destroy the world with fire. And this is the fact that people don't want to believe. So if Jesus says something is going to happen, what? It will happen. It will happen. Take hope in these things. Mark 13, 32, he says, but concerning that day or the hour, no one knows. Again, you're not going to hear me predicting anything like that, okay, or prophesying any of that. So it brings us to the fourth point. Stay alert. Stay alert. 
He says, be on guard, keep awake. Isn't that interesting that in just about 48 hours, he's going to ask his disciples, hey, can you stay awake for just how long? Just, just one hour? My best friends, I've trained you, I've loved you for three years. This is the worst moment of my life. Can you please support me? Can you please just stay awake with me and pray? And did they? No. And I hope we don't disappoint the Lord in the same way when he asks us to do this. In fact, he says four times in these 33, 34, 35, 37, keep awake, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. I, 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 I'm not really smart, but I think I can pick up on the theme there. Can you? We, we, we can pick up on what he's trying to tell us. He says it's just like this. It gives another analogy. He started with an analogy of a fig tree. He ends with an analogy. A man going on a journey. Matthew says it's a long journey. He's going to be gone for a long time. Jesus is the man who's gone away on a long journey. Where, John 14 tells us where Jesus is going. What is he doing? I go to prepare a place for you. His journey is to heaven. He's preparing a place for us. And when he leaves, leaves home, he's put his servants in charge. Guess who that is? That's us. And each one is, has his work. We have work to do. And he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. I'm not sure who the doorkeeper is. I believe maybe if you compare it to Ezekiel and the watchman on the wall, that maybe it's pastors who are supposed to be watching at the door, staying awake, make sure everybody's doing their job. I don't know. That's just speculation. And then he says, therefore stay awake again, for you do not know when the master of the house, Jesus, will come. And then the, the, the night, the 12-hour night was divided into four watches. Three hours each, four times three is 12. The first watch was in the evening. Sun is setting, it's dinner time. So basically from nine to midnight, and then, when, and, and even, I'm sorry, uh, so six to nine, nine to midnight, midnight to three, three to 6 a.m., okay? So these are the four, four watches right here. You don't know which one is gonna come. You just know it's gonna be at night. And again, I don't think that's literally nighttime because if Jesus comes, it's daytime somewhere. He means when the world gets dark, when things get really dark. He says, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what will I say to all? What do I say to you? I say to all, stay awake. The problem is Christians are being put to sleep. We're being lulled to sleep by entertainment, lulled to sleep by comfort, lulled to, lulled to sleep by all the, the things, that careers, and we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus is important, church is important, but I've got to focus on this. And we're just basically not staying awake and alert to what really matters most. Many of you probably heard this before about, this is scientifically true. You can put a frog, and if you try to toss a frog into a pot of boiling water, it'll hit and instantly bounce right back out. But if you put the frog in lukewarm water and turn on the gas and slowly warm it up, the frog will be boiled alive because it just keeps adjusting to the temperature, adjusting to the temperature, adjusting to the temperature. And our world is getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And what I see Christians doing is just adjusting to the temperature and not being shocked by any more. I think it was Billy Graham that said, I, I am shocked at the things I'm no longer shocked at. And our world is shocking us all the time. And we're just accepting it as normal. We need to be shocked. We need to stay awake. We need to stay alert. In a John chapter 3, Jesus said this, whoever believes in the Son has what? Eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but what? The wrath of God remains on him. You see, you can absorb God's wrath because of your sin, or you can accept Jesus Christ who absorbed God's wrath on the cross and make him the Lord of your life and accept his 
payment for your sins. Do you know Jesus personally? This is the Jesus who's coming again, who, who created the world, who flooded the world, and now is coming again to destroy the world with fire. Do you know him? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes if you would. There may be someone here today, and you've been to church here all the time, but you may have never personally made Jesus the Lord of your life, given him everything. He gave everything for you. He wants you to give your life to him. Maybe you don't trust him for that. And you could pray, Lord, help my unbelief. Help me to be able to trust you with my life. He died on the cross. He took all your sins, all of my sins, and he paid the price. And on the third day, he rose victorious, just as he predicted. Why not trust him today to be your savior, to be the Lord of your life? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the Holy Spirit giving us wisdom to understand it. I pray that we would live in light of the coming of Jesus. We would purify our lives. We'd live with the urgency to share the gospel. And we'd be people full of hope. We pray that you would just help us to stay awake. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. If you made a decision to trust Christ, this is my cell phone. If you're watching online, you can text me or call me anytime. I'd love to talk to you further about that. All right, we're going to do a question and answer session right now. Amanda, would you like to help me with that? All right, cool. She's going to grab this microphone over here. Last week, Andre Kimball was sitting here and texted a question towards the end. We were just about to close, and it was a complicated question, so I told him, I said, hey, let me answer that question next week. So Andre, hopefully you're watching online, or you can watch this later. He asked about what do the frogs in the book of Revelation represent? So let's read what it says. Revelation 16 says, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Okay, who is the dragon? Satan. Satan. We, don't, we know that for a fact because in it, early on in chapter 4 or 5, it says the dragon, that serpent, the devil. He says names are all three are the same person. Okay, so coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, who is the beast? Remember I mentioned the, holy, the unholy trinity, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet are the unholy trinity. And out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, those three, three unclean spirits, and here's the key word. Does it say they are frogs? No, it says they are like frogs. They are like frogs. They, they look like frogs. So, and he tells us the next verse what they, they are. He said, for they are demonic spirits. So these demonic spirits take on some type of physical form that look like frogs. Kind of like goblins or, you know, just creepy looking, filthy looking things coming out. They look evil. You know, you can think of... Uh, Ghostbusters or whatever you want to think of. I don't know. <laughs> these are these type of creatures. And what do they do? They perform signs and they go abroad to the kings of the world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. And what's interesting is the frogs, the sun, the water, all these things match the book of Exodus, the 10 plagues on Egypt. See, the way that God's people came out of Egypt is the way that God ends the world with 10 similar plagues at, to a worldwide extent. So what he did on a small level with e Pharaoh and Egypt, he does on a worldwide level with the beast and Antichrist and, and the whole world. All right, good deal. So, sorry, I should have handed this to you sooner. If there are any questions. And um, if, you, if you haven't texted your question already... Let's see. No, there actually are no questions. Okay. And then, is there a question? 
Go ahead. I'll let you read it. I think she's trying to be funny. We'll give it. We'll see how it turns out. Did McDonald, the the gentleman who was um, in the armed services, did McDonald bring a Big Mac to war? (laughs) No. (laughs) Good try. Good job. Okay. Murder McDonald. Yeah. He did speak Gaelic, but he didn't have the Big Mac. Good. All right. Did it come? Did Ashley's come through? And if you're watching online, feel free to text in this number, and we'll be glad to answer it. After one thousand, after the one thousand year reign, will the will pre Armageddon believers, those who are raptured, those who are resurrected from the thousands of years previous, and those who died during the tribulation, be tempted by Satan when he is loosed? Great question. Let me clarify there. So, all believers at the beginning of the rapture will be taken out, but survivors will realize, wait a minute, Jesus was the Messiah, because there are two Jewish evangelists that travel the world preaching the gospel. There's also 144,000 Jewish evangelists traveling, preaching the gospel. And the Bible says so many people will be saved, you can't even number them. That's cool. But the cost will be that they lose their lives with their heads being removed. Okay, so they will not be raptured up. Okay, if they go to heaven, it's because they've died during the tribulation, tribulation saints. Okay, so then when we return... um, and join them here on earth, and we conquer the world. And again, don't think of some long drawn out battle. It says lightning proceeds out of his mouth, and boom, it's done. It's just he conquers the world in a moment. It's not going to be even close to the war, um, as far as a lengthy war. So here's, let me answer it this way. So angels before creation, how many fell? How many rebelled against God and fell? One third. There's no hope of salvation for them at all. They can't repent. Jesus didn't die for them. And that's why angels look at the gospel and are like amazed. Like, he didn't do this for us. He did this for these dirty human beings, which shows how much he loves us, okay? But when that happened, the angels who stayed with God, their decision was made permanent. And the ones who rebelled, their decision was made permanent, and there's no changing. When Jesus, when we go to heaven, your decision to trust Christ is made permanent. You'll, you'll never... And those who got saved on tribulation, their decision was made permanent. Once saved, always saved. They can't be reversed. So now you couldn't sin against God if you wanted to. And once people at the great white throne of, of God are condemned, they will be eternally condemned. They can't repent after that. And what's interesting is they won't repent. They won't repent. They are getting what they want. They wanted God out of their lives. So God and everything that is pleasurable that God brings, sunlight, air to breathe, Things that we enjoy, all that's taken away with God when you reject Him. You can't say, I want, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. Anyway, what's interesting is the rich man who died and went to hell, he never asked to get out. He, said, he still was bossing Lazarus around like his servant. Hey, tell Lazarus to get over here and bring me some water. You know? Hey, go tell my brothers so they don't have to come here. But he never asked to get out. It's really weird. But anyway, so they're per- there's a word for it. I don't know what the theological word is, but basically saying that your, your, your decision is made in cement and it's for all eternity. Okay? If Jesus was God, how come he didn't know when the world would come to an end? Great question. When in fact, I meant to comment on that and I didn't. Um, so when, Jesus, the one who spoke the worlds into existence, okay? Remember John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, right? Then in verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and lived amongst us. So Jesus is the word who spoke the world into existence. So he is almighty God. 
But when he became human flesh, he put on human limitations on purpose. He, he, he set aside his prerogative to exercise all of his divine attributes. He didn't lose them. He set them aside. It'd be like if I'm going to play basketball with Zane, I might decide to get on, one, on both knees and play left-handed, okay? Just to make, be on his level. And that's basically what Jesus did. He became God with one hand tied behind his back and he limited himself on purpose so that he could be the perfect human being, so that he could do what Adam didn't do. Adam was the original king of the world. He messed up. Jesus comes back as the second Adam and he shows you how to be human. So if he had kept all his divine attributes, you'd be like, oh, of course you could be sinless. Look at all that you did. Jesus depended on the Holy Spirit just like we do today. That's why Jesus prayed for miracles. That's why he was ministered to by angels and by the Holy Spirit, because he needed that because he was human, where he set aside his divine attributes. He used them at times because like, he knew their thoughts, okay? but he didn't use them to the fullest extent that he could have. He was basically living life with one hand tied behind his back. So great question. That's it. All right, cool. All right. Well, hey, let's, uh, are we doing an outro? I don't think we are. So let's stand and let's pray. All right. I see that hand. Manuel's volunteering to dismiss us in prayer. All right. So Manuel, why don't you pray for us and ask God to bless us this week?